Let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in the book of 2 Samuel. We're taking a look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, the last portion of the chapter, verses 22 through 39. The text we're going to find there is this. Abner comes offering King David peace, but he is stabbed and killed by Joab. The title of our message, Taking a Stab at Peace. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you with a proper amount of humility, Lord, even though uh, we know that we can come directly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. We know that there's no veil between us and you, that you call us your friends and all. Uh, Yet we're humble, Lord, because we uh, are coming before the creator of the world, the uh, God of the universe and, and our Savior. We want to humble ourselves so that you might exalt us in due time. And Lord, use this word today that that you've prepared for us. Uh, Though it involves political intrigue in the early stages of the kingdom of Israel under David's rule, Lord, it really has personal application for us right now in our homes, in our families, in our church, in our nation even, Lord. And so I pray that you would show us all of those things. But mostly and most importantly, Lord, that we would see Jesus. There's a group of guys one time in the New Testament, they came and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I pray that we would remember that whenever we come together as a church or in any sense as Christians, Lord, that we're there to see you and and to reveal you so that others can see you. And so, Lord, be lifted up and glorified in this place, we pray, and through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. A pastor of a church in Manchester, England. He was preaching on hypocrites in the church when things became hostile. A number of persons in the congregation began thinking that the words of the sermon were being directed at them. According to the news report, some jaw-dropping allegations were then thrown back and forth as a group of the irate churchgoers began to verbally challenge the pastor from their seats. Among the allegations were questions about the pastor's sexuality to which he reportedly responded by claiming that at least three of the women from the group with which he was arguing were cheating on their husbands with younger men. When the Weekend Star newspaper contacted the pastor, he admitted the incident had occurred, and he explained that he was simply doing God's work and would not let evil people get the better of him. It's funny to an extent, but it really shouldn't be. As Christians were called upon, and I quote, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit... In the bond of peace. That's from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3. We're promised from Matthew 5 verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. There are lots of reasons why we can't all just get along. One of them at least has to do with what we might call our vision or where we're looking. Sometimes we have a kind of spiritual tunnel vision in which we focus mainly on ourselves We ought to have spiritual peripheral vision in which we focus mainly on others and on the effects of our behavior on their appreciation of Jesus Christ. We're going to encounter men in our text with each kind of vision. The first is Joab. He definitely suffers from tunnel vision and ends up seriously disturbing the peace by killing Abner. The second is David. He has the peripheral vision to see beyond the faults of men like Abner and Joab in order to keep the peace for the benefit of his people and for all those looking on the nation to see what Jehovah is like. I'll organize my thoughts about spiritual vision around two points. 
Number one, all you see is yourself when you choose to break peace. And number two, all you seek is the Lord when you choose to make peace. In verses 22 through 27, we'll talk about breaking peace, about having spiritual tunnel vision. Now, Abner, he was slimy, to say the least. He knew that God had anointed David to be king after Saul. But when Saul died, Abner took it upon himself to set up one of Saul's lesser sons, Ishbosheth, as a rival to David's claim to the throne. Abner was the real power behind him. Then he instigated a conflict with David's general, Joab, which led to civil war. When it looked like David was going to eventually defeat Ishbosheth, Abner decided to defect and offer David his help to unify the kingdom. And so he was always kind of looking out for himself. David received Abner and he accepted his offer of peace. Abner enjoyed a highly publicized state dinner promoting the peace and then he went his way home and that's where we pick up the story in verse 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come and they told Joab saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he is gone in peace. Now there was bad blood between Abner and Joab. Joab's brother Azael had pursued Abner in a skirmish between the two armies and Abner had killed him. Verse 24, then Joab came to the king and he said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he is already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Now, we'll talk about David and his decision in a moment. That will form our second point. For now, we're focusing on Joab. His analysis of Abner's offer was that it was a deception. Maybe it was. We'll never know. What we will know from the next few verses is that Joab was out to kill Abner no matter what. Verse 26. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azael, his brother. Note the phrasing for the blood of Azael. It tells us that Joab believed he was acting as the avenger of blood in the death of his brother. In ancient Israel, if you killed someone, whether it was accidental or premeditated, A member of the deceased family would come after you to kill you. It was an eye for an eye sort of thing. That person was called the avenger of blood. It's from the Hebrew word guido. No, it's not. But every now and then I just have to interject something like that. Were people killing each other left and right in Israel? No. Because strategically placed throughout Israel, there were certain cities designated as cities of refuge. When you killed someone, you could flee for your life to the nearest city of refuge. Actually, you'd better flee for your life to the nearest city of refuge. There you were guaranteed safety from the avenger of blood until the elders of the city could determine whether the killing had been a case of manslaughter or murder. Whether it was accidental or premeditated. 
then you would be dealt with appropriately. Was Joab the avenger of the blood of Azael? Well, no, he was not because his brother had died in a battle. Not only that, if you remember the story, Abner ran from Azael and twice warned him to quit pursuing him or he would be forced to kill him. On top of that, and probably most serious of all, Hebron was a city of refuge. Abner was a slime, but it was just wrong for Joab to kill him. And if we could say this, it was doubly wrong for him to do it in Hebron. Regardless that Abner might not be the most honorable of men, he came to David with an offer of peace. Joab attacked the peace offer with arguments about Abner's character, but his real motivation was that he could only see his own desire for vengeance. All he saw was himself avenging the death of of his brother. He had this tunnel vision we're talking about. He refused to see the bigger picture. There was a long civil war. Things were going David's way, but there were still casualties on both sides. How many more brothers would lose brothers? Yet Joab was willing to ignore the establishing of peace and allow the conflict to continue and see many other individuals die because he wanted to kill Abner for what he had done. On top of that, how would the northern tribes react to the murder of their general who had come under a banner of truce offering peace? How would it make King David look in one of his first big diplomatic opportunities? This kind of tunnel vision that sees only self is why peace is so often broken. Whether it's at home or in the workplace or at school or at church, you are going to be wronged by someone. You're going to be snubbed or ignored or overlooked or mistreated. You can fill in the offense. There are many, many things that people will do to you or say about you. It's right then when we decide if we're going to act as peacemakers or not as much as lies within us. Let's take a step back and talk about peace. Like it or not, the Bible says that you are God's enemy before you are saved. Colossians 1.21 is one uh, portion of scripture that indicates this. It says, you were once alienated and enemies in your mind. Every human being is born into this world the enemy of God. It's because of sin. The Bible teaches that sin is imputed to you, sin is inherited by you, and that you commit individual acts of sin. Remember, sin is just missing the mark. Sin is acting or or, or thinking less than perfectly because the mark is absolute perfection. And so sin is imputed to the human race. That means that when Adam and Eve acted in the garden, God gave them their choice they were representing the entire human race that would spring forth from them. And so when they sinned, the entire human race sinned. It it was imputed to them or put over into their account. Then we know that we inherit a sin nature. Anyone who has ever had children knows that there is such a thing as the sin nature. Children, maybe your children aren't like this, but... I've never found a child who did everything he was supposed to do and nothing he wasn't supposed to do. That never threw a tantrum, never talked back, never was defiant. Am I I getting through to you? Do you understand what I'm talking about? 
One of the gals first service was saying that one of their kids had told them not to go into her brother's room and they put up one of those baby gates. And so they, a few minutes later, found her sitting on the baby gate with her legs dangling in inches from the ground. Technically, she was not in the room because her feet weren't on the ground. And so uh, you know, it's, it's kind of chuckly cute, oh, yeah, until they get to be teenagers. No, it, it, it just, it's sin. It's sin. It just, you look at them and they're so tiny and it's like, what's the matter with you? Why can't you just do what I ask you to do? Why do you have to touch that? What's so important about touching that and breaking that and embarrassing me? What, what is it about this? That, I mean, what is the motivation here? I told you you'd never be able to watch television again. You'll never see your grandmother again. Your life will be ruined. Everything is over. It's the end of the world if you touch that. And what? This here? Watch this. And, and, and it's all sin. And so we know that we have a sin nature. I'm using your children because sometimes you, you think, oh yeah, I have a sin nature too. But you, you don't want to admit it. But you do. And, and, and you commit individual acts of sin. Uh, have, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything, even small? Have you ever had wicked thoughts? Then you're a sinner. And God says, as bad as that is, He says that makes you His enemy. You are at war with God. And so you need to be reconciled to God, and you can be because of what He has done. That verse in Colossians goes on to say, Yet now He has reconciled you. God reached out to lost mankind in order to make peace with them. He promised in the garden right after Adam and Eve sinned to send his son, Jesus Christ, to make peace through the blood of the cross. Romans 5.10 says, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. It's through the work of Jesus Christ by dying on the cross and rising again that God has reconciled you to himself. We were at war with God, but now we have peace with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that we have peace with God, you're enabled by his indwelling spirit to be like him, to be a peacemaker as you move through this world on your way to heaven. The idea of being a peacemaker is at least twofold. One, you desire that other men and women would be reconciled to God and have the same peace with God that you experience as a Christian. And two, you desire to be at peace with others as much as is possible in this fallen world. This is just the normal Christian life. You're saved, you're at peace with God, and you think, I wish everybody knew the Lord and had this peace, and I want to be at peace with people as much as I am able. If you've experienced peace with God, you will not care as much about your rights when others wrong you. Instead, you're going to see their need, if they're not believers, to be born again. You're going to understand that their words and actions are directed by their sin nature. You'll care less about your temporary trouble and more about their eternal address. When you do care more about your rights when you are wronged, it might be a symptom that you have spiritual tunnel vision. It will lead you to be a peace breaker, to act in selfish ways that uh, disturb the peace. It makes you act like Joab. As much as I really admire the loyalty and courage of Joab as David's general, I mean, he was a fierce warrior. He did what needed to be done, and he was more or less loyal to David. As much as I admire him, he ignored the will of his king, and he put everyone in the nation at risk because he had a selfish desire to kill 
Abner. It was David's will that they make peace. And people were dying. And Joab said, I don't care about any of that right now. What I care about is gutting Abner. I'm going to fool him. And uh, my brother Abishai and him are going to cut him to bits for what he did legally and lawfully to our brother Azael. We have this same problem when we have tunnel vision. We ignore the will of our king. It's Jesus' desire that we endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's an overruling, overriding desire. And when we refuse to do that, we enact bloody skirmishes in which we put everyone else around us in jeopardy. The latest research by the Barna Group discovered a sad trend in the church in America in 2010. Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach oriented. That's their quote. I'll give it to you again. Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach oriented. To put it in the language we're using, the church is suffering more and more from tunnel vision that does not see the bigger picture of people perishing for lack of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you think about it, being ingrown can only lead to more and more internal conflict, which will further hurt our witness to a lost world. The last thing you want to be is ingrown, because then you start to develop wrong attitudes about who the enemy is and what the issues are. And you get very, very narrow in your focus. Everything has to fit into a little tiny box. And anything outside of that is, you know, needing to be dealt with. And all the while, Christians arguing with each other, fighting with each other, uh, you know, doing all these kinds of things that shouldn't be spoken of by Christians, the world is perishing. And worse, they're watching it and thinking, hey, I don't want any of that. I got enough of that at home right now. I don't need to go to church to get that. I need to get away from that. And so we want to have this understanding that we were the enemies of God. God made peace with us. He's given us the ability to be peacemakers. And we have to have what we'll see in verses 28 through 39, a spiritual peripheral vision. Now let's take a look at David who chose to make peace. I don't know if David was right or wrong to receive Abner as he did. I can't say whether David purposely waited until Joab was away to have the state dinner or if it was in God's timing. I'm not sure he handled Joab's murder of Abner properly. The text doesn't address any of those issues. What I can say is that David had big spiritual peripheral vision to pursue peace among God's people. Whatever he did in this section of scripture, he did to Endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He acted graciously and mercifully first to Abner and then to Joab. Neither one of those guys deserved David to receive them with mercy and grace. Nevertheless, he did it to both of them. His vision put an end to hostilities just when things could have gotten totally out of hand. Now, you and I, we know from reading the Bible God's plan for the nation of Israel. But as we'll see in a minute, this was a critical moment in the life of this fledgling nation. And something had occurred which might have been a break between the north and the south for good. And so, in short, David acted like the peacemaker that we're called to be. So, verse 28. 
Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. Now, David's tough talking does not contradict his attitude as a peacemaker. God has raised up nations and governments to steward over the well-being of their citizens. He's given government the power of the sword, the power of life and death, and to wage war when there is no alternative. And so uh, just because you're a peacemaker doesn't mean you're a pacifist. There are things that need to be done. They need to be handled. And David now was in a, a, a sticky situation. He was in a tight spot here with Uh, what to do with Joab and Abishai. And he decided to do less than he could. And so he does discipline these guys, but not as much as he could. It's not contradictory to be a peacemaker, but also wield the power of the sword, or in this case, to wield the power of the curse. David disciplined Joab mercifully so as to preserve both peace in, uh, in the southern kingdom as well as among the northern tribes. Verse 30, so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Azael, at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. Now, this may not seem like much of a discipline to you, but you're the commander-in-chief of the armies of David. You're the second in command. You're a powerful individual. You're a bad dude. You just murdered the enemy general. And your king comes to you and he says, man, I wish you wouldn't have done that. (laughs) But here's what you're going to do. You're going to mourn for the person you murdered with sackcloth and ashes. And you're going to show that what you did wasn't right. Now, you and I might debate this and say, oh, you should have killed Joab. Joab deserved to die. But, and you know what's interesting about this? This is a whole other study that happens over here. But anyway, it's a whole other study. But... Maintaining peace isn't always a, you know, line by line thing that you can write out. I mean, a lot of times people, they have, uh, you know, reconciliation and offense, you know, solving. They have it down to a science where you say this word and I say that word and we say all the right words. But, you know, David is making this up as he goes. This is a tough situation. There are no rules for this, but there's an overrule. And the overrule is I want to preserve peace. And this is the best way to do it, given these circumstances. He says, Joab, Abishai, I'm not going to kill you. You deserve to die under Jewish law. You're not the avenger of blood. You killed an innocent man, you know, in terms of why you killed him. Uh, You did it in a city of refuge. He says, but I'm not going to kill you because I'm going to preserve the peace. I didn't kill Abner because I want to preserve the peace. This is all about endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He was thinking big by asking these men to show respect for the general they just murdered. David had a huge vision for what God wanted to accomplish through a united Israel. And you know, once you get past David, I mean, Solomon did, a, you know, he, uh, I mean, it was in, in many ways the glory days of the kingdom of Israel in terms of its prosperity and all that. But David was really the great king of Israel. And there will will never be another king like him until Jesus comes back. David did a remarkable job 
leading this nation. And so verse 32, they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Man, that had to sting if you're uh, Joab. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything till the sun goes down. Now, while we're reading this, remember that Abner had led Saul's army out against David all those years that Saul was trying to kill him. Remember that Abner had set up a rival king even though he knew David was God's anointed. So this wasn't just about Joab. David had good personal reasons to hate Abner and to desire his death and to be happy he was dead. But as personal as all this was, it was time to be more concerned about others. It was time to act kingly. The very act that could have permanently broken peace between the tribes got turned into the very thing that would bring them together. David's handling of this situation, putting aside his personal feelings and to an extent even legalism. And saying, this is what I, you know, I'm bound to do, but I'm not going to do it on either hand because I see uh, an alternative in the middle. I see a way of making peace. And so David showed as much respect as possible for Abner. He didn't lie about him or inflate his integrity. His song, along with the attendance of Joab and Abishai, showed that he would not let his own feelings or the feelings of others break the peace. He didn't cover for his own men or make excuses for them. It wasn't a case of peace at any price. It was a case of endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, verse 36, all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Who would have thought that in the aftermath of Joab and Abishai murdering Abner, there could be peace? Well, David thought that. And he let his spiritual peripheral vision dictate the course of action that would make peace. Then the king said to his servants, verse 38, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? David said nothing of grace, only of his grandeur, his high birth and civil achievements. He praised Abner and what he was commendable for. There was just cause for mourning because the fall or death of such a man was a public loss. And it was a matter of lamentation. After all, Abner had ultimately brought peace. Verse 39, am I we- and I am weak today, David said, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of my sister Zeruai, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David was a practical man. His kingship was fledgling. He had not really come into his own. Though everything he did pleased the people, Joab was popular and powerful, as was Abishai. I am sure there were a lot of people in the south who felt that Joab had acted properly or were willing to overlook what he did in order to justify it, to treat them harshly, to convict them of murder and and execute them. It, too, would threaten the peace Abner had come to establish. It's never peace at any price. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean you have to take whatever is dished out. You can sometimes quit your job. You might need to file a grievance at work. It might be okay to complain through proper channels. 
All of that's fine, but it does mean that these should not be your very first thoughts and actions. Your first thought should be about the eternal condition of the soul or souls of those troubling you. God may have put you in the exact position you are in to reach them with the gospel based on your reaction. To the extent that you are genuinely more concerned about their souls, they will see the outworking of this new divine nature within you. After all, you know that men are the enemies of God. And God needs to show them that He has made peace with them through the blood of the cross and is offering them reconciliation. And at least one of the ways He does that is by putting you in a situation where you are wronged yet treat others right. And they see something remarkable. How much more should we be willing to be peacemakers in the church then? We should have big spiritual peripheral vision to see what God can do through us corporately if we will look away from self and to be serving one another. Uh, What Barna should find out from surveying churches across America is that we have become more outreach oriented, not less. Now, sometimes this is going to mean overlooking offenses. Uh, I just think that sometimes we need to grow and mature and when somebody offends you you just need to overlook it uh, and and keep going if you can't overlook it then you need to overcome it in a biblical manner and that usually means going to the person and hashing things out privately without talking to anybody else about it I think one of the reasons why the Lord gave us Matthew 18 and other passages where he says go and talk to the person is because if you stick to that, you're going to overlook a lot of things. If you really have to go talk to people and say, hey, you offended me, you did this to me, uh, you know, and you don't tell anybody else and it's just you, know, you and that person, you're going to think, oh, I don't really want to do that. Uh, and, and so you're going, to, you're going to deal with it. But if you have to do it, then do it biblically, keep it to yourself and to God, and overcome it in a biblical manner, seeking reconciliation with others for the greater good of the testimony of the gospel. And it doesn't even mean everybody has to agree all the time. I think sometimes, again, we have to have peripheral vision. When I used to scuba dive about a hundred years ago, I had one of these fancy dancy masks. It was, you know, it it, it it was like a regular scuba mask, but it also had uh, glass on the sides, and so you could train yourself to just look forward. But it gave you a weird but tremendous super uh, uh, peripheral vision, so that you could see everything around you. So when Jaws was coming from the left or from the right, you know, you could you could see you didn't have to always like in Sea Hunt, look around all the time, you know, where because you can only see, you know, scuba diving, you got this tunnel vision. You're just looking straight ahead and this mask is a giant mask and so you could see everything around you. And so I think a lot of times as Christians, we just we need to see around us. There are other people around us. There are mature believers, immature believers, there are visitors, you know, and, and what is really going on in the life of a church? It should be the promoting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should be the lifting up of Christ, the exalting of Christ. And if there have to be issues and offenses, they need to be handled someplace private and quiet between the individuals so that no one really knows what's going on except the exalting of Jesus Christ. And we need to be outreach-oriented. 
God is the ultimate peacemaker. One day he's going to have to judge those who have finally rejected his offer of reconciliation. He'll punish them severely. It's perfectly within his character to do so. God could not be God unless he ultimately judged sin. In the meantime, we are his ambassadors on the earth who spread this concept of the peace of God. And so we need to retain or regain a big vision for who God is and for what he is doing in the world through the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these things. I pray that we would take them to heart. Uh, And Lord, because we're your children, because we're born again, because we're called sons of God, we are peacemakers. It's who we are. It's our nature. We have peace with you and we're wanting others in our family, our friends, our co-workers, those that don't know you. We want them to know you. We want them to be in heaven with us and with you. We want the angels to rejoice when they're saved. And among believers, we want to maintain peace and, and, and endeavor to keep that unity. And so I pray that this would just serve as a, a great refresher to us, a real reminder to us, Lord, to have a big vision for what you're doing and what you want to do, to not worry so much about our rights when we're wronged, but to, to look to the cross of Jesus Christ, to keep pressing on, to keep moving forward, not to hinder the work, Lord, but to help it. And I don't know about the church in America and the trends that Barna's talking about, Lord, but I pray that if we did a survey of our church and of other good churches in our area, that it would come out just the opposite, that we're more interested in reaching out beyond ourselves because there's something great to share with others. We thank you, Lord. Amen.